Teen eating disorders have exploded in the pandemic, and the mental health crisis facing our youth is at an all-time high. Now more than ever, we need to ensure that home and school are places that intentionally decrease, not accidentally increase, risk. And it's never too early or too late to start. The Full Bloom Project helps groups of parents and school professionals rethink how we talk about bodies, food, movement, health, and social justice to ensure we all plant protective, body-positive seeds in the next generation. To learn more about our workshops, email us at info at fullbloomproject.com. I'm Zoe Bisbee. And this is the Full Bloom Podcast, where we're nurturing a more embodied and inclusive next generation. Student affinity groups bring folks with similar and shared identifiers together to discuss their experiences with those identifiers. They provide a vital sense of connection and belonging while providing members with a safe space for candid conversation. Affinity spaces also provide opportunities to make change in the community, to work collaboratively, build relationships with fellow students, faculty, and community partners, and even gain college resume-worthy skills such as organizational management, sustaining and increasing membership, planning and executing events, and following through on strategic initiatives. Lots of schools have affinity groups that offer spaces like this for those with shared ethnic backgrounds or sexual orientations, gender identities, and even religious expressions. But very few, I've actually only heard of one so far, dedicate space like this to body positivity. Now, I don't think there's one way to structure a body positive affinity group or a body positive club for that matter, but I do think our tweens and teens need them. They need them in schools, pre-established spaces, safe havens in their school environments where they can connect with others who also might want to fight back against diet culture, advocate for size, diversity, and accessibility, vent about the appearance pressures of social media, and demand more discussion about body positivity school-wide. Full Bloom's Body Positive Projects are designed to get these very conversations started, to open up spaces in schools and communities, and we take a lot of inspiration from the work of my guests today, Hilary Kanavi and Dana Sturdivant, the duo behind Be Nourished, an organization committed to building a body-compassionate and weight-inclusive world. Hillary and Dana joined me for a conversation about what they call body trust and how we can use their healing model to repair the ruptures within us that maybe we've incurred along our own diet culture journeys, but also how we can infuse their philosophy into our family values as well as into body positive student affinity groups so that there might be fewer places for our young people to experience body trust rupture in the first place. 
Here's my conversation with Hillary and Dana of Be Nourished. I'm Hillary. I'm a therapist by training, and I um, I came to this work through my own relationship with my body, which, you know, I was raised by folks who dieted, who were also really progressive in many ways, except for around diet culture. And that disconnect was complicated for me, but I also didn't live in a thin body growing up. And so um, it felt like the thing to do. And increasingly, as I moved towards adulthood and my career, it felt, I can, it just felt like I was it just everything felt so out of alignment when I was participating in it, but it didn't, I couldn't put it together why exactly. And through my own therapy early in my career, my personal therapy, I found someone who did intuitive eating work, which, you know, this was like 25 years ago now. So that was kind of a rare find and a lucky find. And the activist in me was super pissed off once I figured that out because I really was upset that I just got a counseling degree and we never talked about any of this and bodies at all, hardly in my program. And I was pissed. Nobody would say that it was, I learned in this obscure office in Portland, Oregon about intuitive eating. I had never heard about that before. And so my work has always contained a little bit of curiosity about what's not out there and what's needed and how to turn things upside down a little bit or a lot. And I started bringing that philosophy into my practice. And the first people that really sought out needed my services and needed someone to do things a little differently with them was people who had just had weight loss surgery. And this was a, a time, you know, so long ago now, I guess, but where surgery was becoming very accessible and not so rare. And people could, you know, there was radio advertisements for it for the first time and all these things. So like the culture around that was shifting. And people were post-surgically seeking somewhere to talk because the alternative was these kind of large hospital conference rooms with like 40 people in it. And everyone would be like wanting to talk about why they feel so weird or why this isn't great. And instead they'd be talking about like what protein powder everyone's using, you know? So I formed some groups and those were really some of the foundation of my work as a clinician and probably deep roots of body trust work that I ended up creating with Dana. Dana and I ended up joining a clinic right around the same time where we were going to have our practices and the clinic was going to kind of be formed around questions around bodies and size. Philosophically, we've come a long way since those initial conversations and from the owner of that practice, but we did meet there and Dana was one of the first clinicians I met who really wanted to dig deep into altering the way we were trained and the language we were using around body, weight, health, concepts like that. Yeah. Dana, maybe in telling us a little bit about you, you can maybe answer that question. Like what is body trust? How did you come to it? And how can, for listeners, what do you want them to understand when you reference body trust work? Yeah, sure. I, so I'm a dietitian and, you know, I was trained in the dominant weight paradigm and like most healthcare providers, I didn't believe I was promoting dieting behaviors. I thought I was promoting in air quotes, healthy lifestyles mm -hmm. because most healthcare providers know that diets don't work and they believe that they're promoting lifestyle changes, but they're very much rooted in dominant culture and diet culture and, and the, and the qualities of a dieting mind. So when I started my work 
pretty early in my career, I worked in research on clinical trials, helping people make these so-called lifestyle changes to improve their health and lose weight. And, you know, the intervention worked in air quotes in that, you know, people's weight was down at six months, but at two years, their weight was up and plus more. And that's what the research shows is that the most consistent weight, effective weight loss at two years is weight gain. But the researchers that I was working with for felt like the intervention worked because people did lose weight, weight, and we just need to find ways to help them keep the weight off. And I was starting to feel unethical and starting to see the harm and starting to think that what we were doing wasn't helpful and that there probably was another way and that we could trust people's bodies to sort out the weight, that we could decenter weight and, you know, help people move towards better relationships with food in their bodies. I don't even like that word better, but heal their relationship with food in their bodies. And that we could trust their bodies to sort out the weight. You know, they thought no one would ever sign up for that. And <laughs> what are you talking about? And it was around this time that I was like, okay, if I want to work with people in the ways that I want to work with people, I'm probably not going to find an organization that wants to hire me to do this stuff. So I'm just going to have to do my own practice. And it was around that time that I discovered the Health at Every Size community, this growing community of people that was feeling similar to the way I was feeling and were advocating for something really different. So I was like, okay, I'm not the only one. And then I discovered Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch's book, Intuitive Eating, where they talk about the qualities of a dieting mind and they give you a chart that shows the diet mentality versus the non-diet mentality. And when I saw that, I'm like, oh yeah, the participants in the clinical trials were definitely in the dieting mindset. Nobody, we weren't over here talking about this non-diet mentality. So we could call it what we wanted, but what a load of crap. And then I went to an eating disorder conference, which just kind of solidified the whole thing when a speaker said, we prescribe for fat bodies the very behaviors we diagnose as eating disordered and thin ones. And so it was like from there that we started, you know, sitting in rooms with people, having conversations about this and realizing that at the end of the day, it's distilled into this issue of trust that we don't, we don't grow up in a culture that trusts our bodies. We don't, we're not socialized to trust our bodies. We're not socialized to trust other people's bodies. So we, we started to facilitate all our groups around this body trust umbrella. And somebody with a strong body trust practice is not immune to having bad body days. You know, we're, we all grow up in this culture. We live in this culture. It's pretty toxic towards bodies. We say, you know, somebody with a strong body trust practice has the tools and skills and awareness and analysis to not feel sucked in and pulled in towards another body changing program or plan on those days that they know something's happening, that they're hooked, they're getting pulled, but they know how to skillfully navigate those days without being destructive to themselves. That, of course, becomes one of the goals of treatment when I work with folks in my practice, right, that come in maybe with an eating disorder or a disordered eating, that that's sort of the goal, right? I appreciate what you're saying. It's like to be realistic. The goal isn't to never have a thought or a feeling or an urge, but rather to have a, a practice of maybe noticing that urge and then not capitulating to the urge. And so 
part of what I want to talk with you both about at the, to start, and then we'll get to maybe youth later, is if an adult is listening, right? And it's all adults listening, that maybe hears that and says, oh my gosh, like, yes, I want that. I, I, I get why I'd want that. Like, I want to be able to feel less sucked in or less on that hamster wheel, but I don't know how to get there. I wonder if you could walk us through this arc of body trust work that I know you're, you've written about in this book that's coming out, the rupture, the reckoning, and the reclamation. If you can walk us through that to kind of help us understand what are those phases or stages, especially if you're speaking to somebody who's like contemplating change, but doesn't quite know how to get started or even where they're going. A lot of people come to us at a stage where they're like, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know why I can't diet anymore. I don't know why I can't. My disordered eating can't improve. And so a lot of people come to, I think, non-diet spaces and body trust from a place of like, I don't know. I don't, I know I don't want to go back, but I don't know how to go forward. And a lot of what we find is missing is the is the truest form of what happened or the story. And so we we call the first phase the rupture because we want folks to have an opportunity to really kind of reckon with what happened. You know, and I think diet culture has offered us all the solutions and all of the blame. And so people are unclear often as to like what really harmed my relationship with myself and my body? How was this actually supposed to go? And so we really invite people into kind of a both an exploration of their own story, but also a really like heady investigation of alternate paradigms, like non-diet ideas, like, you know, the fact that diets were never supposed to work in the first place is really hard to make personal sometimes um, for folks. And we really see the way our bodies are indoctrinated into diet culture as a violation of us. It's something that most of us didn't consent into. Mm -hmm. It usually happened in childhood when we ask our clients. It usually happened before the age of 10, where all of a sudden they were in their bodies. And then all of a sudden they received feedback that there was something about their bodies that was wrong or didn't work. And that shifts into this endless body project of self-improvement where all of a sudden our bodies become objectified by us via the culture and that's where they stay. So the first stage, the rupture, is where we're really investigating what happened and really wanting folks to know why we say we believe this wasn't your fault. We believe that this happened to you and we believe that everything that you did and the name of trying to improve your body and your relationship to your body was done because that was what you were taught to do. That's what you were supposed to do. And it didn't work. And that wasn't your fault. That's the rupture. Maybe I'll let Dana talk about the next phase a little bit. So oftentimes people want a little bit of a shortcut in healing. And diet culture is very much a quick fix. So we tell our clients, like, they know within three hours of going on the plan, the, the latest plan, if they're doing it right or wrong. And body trust doesn't feel like that. It's it's not, there's not, it's not a quick fix. It's quite a process. 
It's an unraveling. It's a lot. We say there's a lot more to unlearn on the way to body trust than there is to learn. And, you know, sometimes people just want this kind of bridge from body trust to reclamation, from understanding the rupture to reclaiming. And there's all of these things we have to reckon with on the path to reclamation. And reckoning means to come to terms with. So we ask people, like, what are you coming to terms with as you divest from diet culture and reclaim your body and body trust? And we're reckoning with the harm done, the years wasted, the time, the money, the energy. We're reckoning with upholding harm. You know, those of us who are healthcare providers are reckoning with the crap we've recommended because we just didn't know better. You know, our intention, many people's intention isn't to harm people, but the impact was harmful. So we're reckoning with that. There's grief here, you know, there's grief to reckon with. So there's, there's, you know, we name the reckoning. We think about the reckoning. We kind of get down in the trenches and come to terms with all of this as we start pulling the roots out of this really toxic culture so that we can root into something more nourishing of our entire being, which is what we believe body trust is. When you name grief, I think that's so important because, of course, when you put any kind of parenting work out into the universe, everyone that receives it is getting their sort of inner child activated as well. And like that sort of reparenting ourselves. And I know from just anecdotally from patients that I worked with and people we've had on the show, I mean, the amount of injury that comes from really trusted adults in our lives is huge and is often can be traumatic. And I think that you have this phase rightfully labeled the reckoning. I mean, and, and a space to process grief around that. And that's really hard to reconcile for people. And I'm sure you see it in your practice, reconcile like this person who loves me, who loved me so much and hurt me so much or taught me to hate myself in this way, but it did it out of love. I mean, these are complicated experiences. And so I, I want listeners to hear this because there is no quick fix on that one. I mean, people go into therapy for years for issues of this sort. And so I imagine that you, through your body trust work, you have ways of guiding people, but I, I want to double click on what you're saying that this is a process and that Mm -hmm. you cannot, there's no wrong way to grieve. Sometimes it takes a while and you might want to get into the reclamation, but you have to let it run its course. Fair to say. Yeah. I think diet culture doesn't allow for process. You know, diet culture isn't the big eraser of process. Like it's, it's just like, you know, this, this problem is you and you need to fix it. And here's all the ways to fix it. And if you're not fixing it, then you're not doing it right. And none of us work that way. Like that is just not what, how humans move through life and challenges. You know, we, we sit, we're uncertain, we think about it a lot, we process it, we go backwards, we go forwards, you know, we hold a lot and that has to be part of our healing. And there's something that's happened because of the way diet culture, capitalism, all that have intersected in this conversation that we we don't have process, we just have expectation of movement. Sometimes the reclamation, which is the final phase, ends up looking like 
I'm just going to sit here for a while, mm-hmm. you know, or my reclamation is choosing to be, you know, in process for the rest of my life or allowing this to change or, or allowing my needs to made. So reclamation is sometimes a, a set of tools around how, how do I go forward in a relationship with myself that I want to be in for a lifetime, knowing that it can't be tied to productivity or doing something right, but more so it's tied to how much I'm divesting from so I can become more holy myself and reclaim these parts of self that had been put aside and all this productivity and all this trying to become better. What I think about when you describe these phases or this process, or even just this commitment to being in process, I'm thinking about a parent listening to this, who's maybe here because they're trying to prevent the rupture or Mm -hmm. let's let prevent is a pipe dream protect it is right Mm -hmm. but to let's say protect and i'll raise my hand like i'm one of them right i'm trying to protect my very young children from the rupture and of course i'd like to think we can increase protective factors right decrease risk Mm -hmm. Um, as parents we can definitely guarantee that we will not be the person that violates our kids sense of body trust right but of course Mm -hmm fucked up world right we live in yeah no one none of us are saying it's not that way but I guess I wonder I'm sure you've worked with parents in this process like what that the intersection of maybe a parent who's let's say in the reckoning phase or or maybe in the reclamation phase I don't know I mean anything you want to share about that while parenting right like while trying to sort of do better or parent their kid maybe in a way that they wish they had been. I'm just curious your thoughts. I think that we can't protect our kids at all from these cultural messages. I think we can prevent being a part of the rupture to some degree. But when you were talking, it made me think about like kids of color or trans kids who are going to be, have their, their relationship with their perfect selves crapped on by the world very early and so how much our work as caregivers is about building a culture of radical acceptance in our homes and hoping that I think like Dana talked about around body trust is we want our kids to know that they are so loved and held and accepted that they can have a bad day out in the world or a bad body day or whatever's happening and not necessarily feel swayed by it. I remember my kid, it was many years ago in kindergarten and his teacher was being real shamey that day. And she did one of those, like, you need to talk to my kid about X, Y, Z right in front of him with like the finger wag. And I remember I felt a huge amount of shame and I was like, I pretty much want to murder this person right now, but I didn't. And that was good. And we walked out and I, I turned to my son and I said, wow, looks like you've had a tough day today. And he was like, well, I think she's had a tough day, but I'm doing okay. And I was like, damn, that's the good stuff, right? Like I was all triggered. I was like, we're going for ice cream. Like I was doing, going running through all my stuff. He didn't need anything. Mm-hmm. He didn't need anything around it. And um, I think sometimes it's, it's so complicated to start bringing our kids into something that we haven't had ourselves, you know? Mm -hmm. I couldn't imagine that he was fine and he was fine. 
and I wasn't fine. And so then there was that question of like, how do we create an environment where we remember that our kids aren't aren't necessarily as harmed as we've been mm-hmm. and um, hold our own sweet selves while we're honoring their process. Mm-hmm. Like that reminder that we are separate from we are separate children. exactly and they're having their own experience and they might be fine you know <laughs> exactly. yeah exactly I want to switch gears for a moment I'm looking at your manifesto uh-huh. and I'm always I'm a little intimidated by a word like manifesto and I feel like that might just be my own bias but I love it and I feel like it is in many ways it is full blooms manifesto. Like, I mean, I feel like it just uh-huh. in, intuitively, I think I was believing all these things be- and then I discovered and I thought, oh, look at that. They organized it so nicely for all of this <laughs> because these are fundamental pillars of whatever you want to call it, body liberation, body trust, body positivity. I don't care what you want to call it, but these are the pillars. These are the values that we want families to have, schools to have, right? In order to mm-hmm. truly create safety. and this idea that I've been having a lot lately is how, first of all, why don't they exist? Why don't like body positive affinity groups exist in schools? Like for example, my kids go to a a very interesting kind of progressive inclusive school and they have tons of affinity groups and there's a whole identity curriculum and I'm, I love it, but there's no body positive Mm. affinity group. And I think I'm going to see what I can do in the next nine years while we're there. But I feel like whether it's in high school or more community-wide for families, this is a missing offering, I think, at large. And I feel like your manifesto gives a really beautiful template for people to use. And so I wondered if maybe we could innovate a little bit together and you could walk us through your manifesto, what you believe. And how maybe particularly young people, like high schoolers maybe, could bring these ideas into a space or into a community with each other to be representatives in the school of these values. And I'm curious to know where you would go. Like you could design the intention for this affinity group fantasy of mine. And this is an activity we, we often do in our reclaiming body trust retreat, which we haven't held for a couple of years with COVID, but We certainly give participants our manifesto up front so they know where we're coming from. And by the end of the retreat, we have them write their own manifesto. And so that's what I'm thinking about in terms of kids is like, how do we, like, my thought is like, let's, we could give, use, you know, the Be Nourished manifesto, which probably will become the Body Trust manifesto (laughs) as an example, but then have the kids really come up with the statements that resonate with them? What are the words that resonate with them? Mm -hmm. Having them come up with these statements because what they say and believe will be much more resonant to them than something we've written. They might get inspiration from ours or somebody else's, but how do we have it be more personal to them? So I envision like a class where kids write their different statements and then they collect them all and Mm -hmm. distill them down or I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's one thing I'm thinking about. Yeah. I bet you, Hillary. I, I'm thinking about what you said about how, you know, fatness is not often included in social justice circles still, and how much progressive spaces still uphold 
body ideals and healthism and nutritionism and all these things that are actually very ableist. And so this intersection of fatness and ableism is typically underexplored. And as much as I want kids to, and I think kids could probably source this better than most adults in terms of coming up with something, I really would like to see the adult lead the way and have some bottom line values from which the manifesto is built upon, like radical body acceptance of all bodies, that this conversation about body acceptance does not have an intersection with health other than how body terrorism, as Sonia Renee Taylor says, or body marginalization impacts the well-being of people, mm-hmm. but not that we're accepting people even if they don't meet our vision of health because that is the wrong direction and often the direction people come to this conversation through. So I would like to see a few strong foundations of unconditional body acceptance, of not having the conversation be um, rooted in everybody being healthy. I would like this conversation to be rooted in intersectionality, right? That fatness is an intersection with every other identity and ism and has an impact on people and impacts people differently. And I think it would be incredible if this creation carried through to increasing access and inclusivity in all the school programming. I love the idea of affinity spaces. They're like, they're absolutely necessary. And I can't imagine what it would have been like when I was in junior high and high school to have an affinity space for people of size and I want them to be so deeply protected also by what the school wants and believes in. I think what you're saying is so important because in a way, right, having one safe space isn't even good. I mean, it doesn't exist. So like one would be better than none, but yeah, hear you that it's not good enough. Like both are true. Uh -uh. And the most sort of satisfying work I've ever done is in a school where they were saying, we suspect there's some crossover work to be done in like health and science class. And it's like, oh yes, that's that's just true. (laughs) You know, um, like let's talk about it. And I I think there's some wonderful uh, people that are doing work like that, consulting in schools and helping. Cause I agree that in identity curriculum, I have a kindergartner and Mm -hmm. when they talk about identity, I would really love to see different words to describe size of body on there. They mm-hmm. do a whole unit on make, mixing paint to find their right, like the color that mm-hmm. represents their skin. And I think, you know, I am a big believer that we need to invite people to look at the word fat in a completely different context, right? Yeah. The younger, the better, because our, our little ones have a lot of imagination. Like they might just be able to tolerate it as a word, you know, and a neutral descriptor. But I love that idea of, you know, using this as a template, inspiring young people to create their own, and then maybe expecting or asking that of a school, you know, the stakeholders to do the same, those progressive spaces, but they don't see how they're missing a big piece of the system of oppression if they're not also even understanding what healthism is or what nutritionism Mm -hmm. is. Maybe Dana, since we have a minute or two left as a dietitian, like what is nutritionism and how do you talk about that as a dietitian yourself? 
Yeah, I mean, I, the word ism implies an ideology. So healthism, uh, racism, nutritionism, the ism implies an ideology, not a solid science. And nutritionism is really a, a, living in a culture that like dumbs food down to its nutritional components and robs it of its meaning and believes that the purpose of eating is to get those nutrients and there's no other reason to eat, which is like so dishonoring of a human being's experience. Animals go to a trough and feed. Human beings come to a table and dine together. We commune through food. We grieve, we celebrate. And when we mess with people's food, we're messing with their lives and their culture and their heritage and their ancestry in ways we few of us really recognize as having as big of an impact as it has on somebody. So nutritionism to me is all of people's personal beliefs about food and eating that are rooted in often very shoddy science, maybe one research study, if that. And it's it's much more because everybody eats, everyone has an opinion about food and eating or has the potential to have an opinion about What's the right way to eat? What's the wrong way to eat? Every human being, if you have a body, you have a requirement for food. And so you have an opinion. And nutritionism to me is saying like people, what gets spouted off as solid science is often people's opinions and personal philosophies. The more I learn about nutrition and go into this field, you know, the deeper I go in, the more I realize how much we don't know and how much nutrition information is spouted off with very little evidence to support it. We're not talking about bodies and bodies of evidence. We're talking about one study that people glop onto to create a fad that then blows shit up. And people will take nutrition information from any recommendations from anybody. Social, I mean, social media, I I heard a staggering statistic. It's like 90% of people, people's nutrition information is coming from Instagram. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's horrifying that that's the case. And I totally believe it. I totally believe it. Like I notice my own, you know, I need to research something and I think, well, I'll go, I'll go check out that mom's group on Facebook. They're always reliable. <laughs> Why do I think they're reliable? I mean, but it, and I mean, that's for like a hotel recommendation or a stroller, but for how we're going to think about food and nourish our food, ourselves. I, I, I'm frightened by that. And it's interesting because a a school that I was speaking with recently asked, should we even be teaching nutrition? And I think that I want to know your answer to that, but I love this suggestion (laughs) so long as it not, it's not nutritionism or making sure that you're not spouting nutritionism. Cause I think I imagine a lot of people don't even know that word you know, wouldn't necessarily think of it as uh, at risk. What do you say when you hear with a school of a science curriculum or, you know, science department says, should we be teaching middle schoolers nutrition? How would you answer that? I mean, no, Uh, ultimately, I don't think that the majority of people who are in the classrooms have enough analysis around it to do it in a way that's not going to be harmful. I think kids I mean, obviously different age kids, it depends, but, you know, a lot of kids, a lot of where nutrition information is coming is, is not, is geared towards children who, who think in very black and white 
ways and do not have the emotional intelligence to really filter through what we're talking about and 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 think about it in more complex ways. So I would like to see less nutrition education. I would love to see more around food yeah. and a culture of food and understanding your food culture and if if they're going to talk about food, have it be much more well-rounded to look at our ancestry and um, you know, just like a, a conversation about movement is going to bring up class differences and access. There's a lot of rich information to be discovered when we look at it through a really wide lens. But unfortunately, I think it's more about, you know, what's good and bad and right and wrong. And even though many curriculums are trying to stay out of that, I mean, at the end of the day, that's what it is. That's the take. And use all of these fancy words to avoid good and bad and right and wrong, but the children are not taking it that way. And here in the Pacific Northwest, in the land of orthorexia, you know, we have kids picking apart other kids' foods now. Yeah. And making comments about other kids' food and repeating what they hear at home about and really undermining that child's parents' ability to feed them. Totally. That's you're in New York City too. Maybe Hillary, I'll just ask you in the mm-hmm. in the way that I sort of asked Dana what to do about this question, nutrition. Is there anything that you would really want schools to do more of? Right. Like I think this is Dana's like less nutrition, like less nutrition talk. What is one thing that you'd want schools to do more of so that to help protect against that rupture, let's say? I would love to see more fat representation and fat affirmation. You know, like where are the pictures of fat kids living their beautiful lives? You know, where are the statements of loving all bodies? Where are the protective factors for kids around fatness? That's what I think we need more of. You know, I think we've put the onus on like individual people and certainly with with Body Trust, we having developed this process of healing, but really I don't want the onus on individual people at all. I think we need to get the problem focused up and out of the bodies of kids and, and adults and really be tough on systems and institutions and learn how to be loving and accepting and affirming of all bodies in relationship. I'm with you. Dana, anything you want to add? Just found myself thinking about like food and body sovereignty really celebrating bodies and body diversity. And I also found myself thinking about the maintenance phase podcast episode about the president's physical fitness test or whatever that presidential fitness test or whatever that thing was called and how we, you know, they center the most athletic bodies in that. I would like to see like the least athletic bodies be centered in physical education Mm -hmm. and for, for movement to be an opportunity to play and connect with the body and that, you know, we center disabled bodies and not athletically inclined bodies in our physical education, instead of making those that have the most athletic prowess, just feel better about themselves while everyone else feels like crap. Yeah. So that's the other thing that the stories we hear coming out of physical education classes just ruin people's relationship with movement for the rest of their lives. Totally. And I had a a researcher on from uh, Berkeley who, oh my gosh, Hannah Thompson. She talked a lot about physical education and how important it is that it feels like play and that it's enjoyable for everyone. And Mm -hmm. 
you know, I, I think about how if my kid said, ah, I, didn't, I don't really like PE, I, I, before that conversation, I might not have thought that much. If they like were unhappy in another class, I might have been more, I don't know, concerned. But I think that how much are you enjoying physical education in your school as, as a kid? Like, I do think it's a pretty important question. Like, how, because if you're not enjoying it, why? Is it because you're on the sidelines or you're experiencing yourself as just like inept as opposed to the one who's like excelling? And I want to draw people's attention to that because you're talking about the like preventing the protecting children mm-hmm. from that rupture, their relationship to movement and being in their body and in joyful ways. And I'm so with you on that. Th- this was so helpful. I, I, I'm really appreciating your your Pacific Northwest vibe this morning, hearing <laughs> from the subway and like many decades in New York City. And I feel like I'm in Portland right now. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, ladies. You're welcome. Anytime. It is, it is chill. <laughs> in some ways, in some ways, it's not at all. No, I mean, I, it, it was. It's. I believe you on the orthorexia in. Yeah. Your part of the country, it must be really crunchy and raw. Yeah, I don't know. Everyone needs a different project for sure. <laughs> is there so many problems to solve. So many problems anymore. Yeah. <laughs> is there anything else that you want to? mention or ask before we stop I I do think this was this was going to be wonderful for us I would just say you know if listeners are wanting to know more about Body Trust our book will be out August 30th it's being published by Tarcher Perigee and it's available for pre-order well thank you both so much Thank you for listening to the Full Bloom Podcast. For more body positive nurturing content and conversation, you can find me on Instagram at Full Bloom Project. Special thanks to Davis Lloyd, Christina Regal, and all of you who helped support the Full Bloom Project by rating, reviewing, and sharing these episodes. See you next time.